I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Okay! Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. <laughs> okay. All right, Michael. We're going to talk about some fun stuff for you, I bet. I think we've got a fun. really great episode ahead of us. Do you know who mine is, Michael? Did Ka- did Jen tell you? No, I don't know. I know you said earlier yours was problematic, so I'm a little eager to be like, mine is too, if it's any con- consolation. That actually does uh, make me feel a little bit better. Yeah, it is. Uh, okay, so I won't give you her married name, but we'll start at the beginning. You'll find out very quickly. Um, okay, let's see. Where are my notes? Where are my notes? Okay, great. So, her name, uh, uh, when she's born, is Catherine Dexter. She's born in August in 1875 in Dexter, Michigan, which is not a coincidence because her family is super prominent and her mother went home to the uh where her family was from to have her daughter in what i assume was a confinement situation which as you know childbirth in uh basically any time is terrible but at this particular time uh you would go and have your confinement which is pre-born you would go and like not be sociable you'd stay inside there wasn't appropriate there wasn't necessarily appropriate dress for a woman to be out in public while having a pregnant belly. So the solution was just lock her in the house? Not lock her up, but just keep her in there. Yeah, just keep her comfy. You know, not a lot of strain. Mm-hmm. Um, they also didn't basically understand anything about the human body. <laughs> so you wouldn't really, you know, you'd be scared it would the baby would fall out or I don't know. Nonsense. <laughs> 19th century nonsense. So anyway... That's all conjecture to say that she was confined there. But um, it was a common thing to have happen. Her family's super wealthy, so she had the luxury of being able to return home to have the baby. Uh, So Catherine's born. Her mom's name is Josephine. Her dad's name is Wirt. W-I-R-T. Horrible name. But he's a big deal. He's a big Chicago attorney. They actually live in Chicago, but have ties to Boston and New England and... Michigan and their family actually dates back to even like um, the first Massachusetts uh, pilgrims that came over. So, oh, so they're old really deep money, really deep uh, American heritage. She, uh, her parents are pretty progressive for the time. Her dad was a known abolitionist. Her father's father was also an abolitionist of the time, and her mom was pretty feminist for that level of society she she uh wanted the right to vote she was a suffragette before maybe that term was super used as commonly as we know it in the 1900s so and she advocated for um maybe let's call it family planning uh early uh, awareness of participating in reproductive health for women and seeing that as a way of Becoming independent. Interesting. What, so would, what would that mean in like the 1870s? Uh, don't do it. <laughs> well, I mean, 
that's that, that's a tricky concept because technically you're not allowed to talk about it. So there's just an, a nature of like family planning, aka abstinence at certain times, or there's like more subversive items that were like back deals and things like that of like, um, you know, items you could participate uh, in or not. And uh, I mean, condoms are rather old, but not very functional at this time, but did exist and uh, other things like that. So she's around kind of this progressive life in her early childhood. And um, she is a very studious child. I'm finding a common theme with most of mine that I pick is that they are dorks. They're giant (laughs) dorks as children and they love to read and they love things that aren't at the time or even now typically feminine. Uh, you know, like debate. <laughs> what girl? What little girl is just like I love debate? Well, apparently, all the ones that I pick, and um, Catherine in particular is into science and uh, education of all kinds, but she really thrives with science. Um, her dad passes away when she's pretty young, and her mother inherits his wealth, which is quite substantial, and it's kind of in um Catherine's uh teenage years so she's uh they're kind of figuring out their lives without this giant figurehead of the patriarch in their family and she wants to go and go to college and pursue science her mom wants her to go to finishing school and do that kind of stuff and like do the path that is typical for a woman of her family you know what I mean mm-hmm. you want to marry well like her mom did you want to pursue your interests of philanthropy like her mom did with her suffrage but at the same time she's still a prestigious woman so that means finishing school marry a nice guy have like a coming out ceremony all that stuff you know what I mean all that waspy stuff that happens <laughs> um okay so five years after her father dies her oldest brother also passes away very suddenly from meningitis oh no uh, which i'm sure they called it like your brain blew up at the time because it wasn't they didn't know anything they didn't know anything about medicine and she is very aware at the time of how little doctors were able to help her father and then her brother and her mom is sort of a mess because she loses these two men in her life very quickly and is like very grieving so then Catherine sort of has to help her mom through her grief putting her education on the back burner and then uh, the finishing school kind of like gets finished and she's like, cool, maybe now's the time that we're a little more financially independent to do what I want to do now that mom's okay. So she looks around, uh, they have moved to Boston at this point um, to kind of reconnect with that section of their family that was still rooted there. And she looks around and she finds that she would like to pursue a degree at Boston Tech, which uh, is 1896 and would eventually go on to be known as the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So she's one of the very first women to be involved with that institution. And she definitely, well, I should clarify, at the time that she enrolled, they only had 44 women students. And only one had ever graduated from MIT. That so still in the early days. Odds. Not great odds. But you know what's on her side? Her whiteness and her wealth, which will become a theme throughout her life. <laughs> She's really well prepared for like the amount of injustice that a woman would have at this time. Um, mainly because she can buy her way out. So she 
these tragic like deaths in her family having to do with science and medicine she pursues a degree in biology and uh it's interesting because it took her a while to actually get in because of the to the major like she was in the school but then she had to take preparatory classes in order to basically mit was like what are these finishing school classes and she's like there are classes in uh many languages science math uh, and they're like yeah but it was at a finishing school and she's like yeah but it's it's class i mean it's class and they're like yeah but it's not boy class so it doesn't count so you have to take mm. them again mm. and then you can get your biology degree it's fine this being said, she didn't actually enroll full-time until she was 25, but she did get her bachelor's in biology in 1904. One of the things she got done while she was at MIT was, as a science student, uh, <laughs> okay, okay, this is what happened. She has to go into a lab. Lab dress code states that, or MIT dress code at the time, stated that women had to wear hats at all times inside. She's like, cool, I can't wear a hat in a lab because all the hats we wear, because it's the 1890s, are covered in feathers and that's flammable and dangerous and I'm not going to set my hair on fire for science. So how about we don't make us wear hats in the lab anymore? And MIT is like, huh, go figure you have a restrictive rule against one gender that then maybe doesn't allow them in a room and then progress stalls, go figure. Maybe this rule is stupid and, and arbitrary. Maybe we should just get rid of it. And they do. And this actually weirdly opens the door for a bunch of women to suddenly pursue science in such a simple way by being actually just allowed in the space. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Just a dress code. And all yeah. of a sudden they're allowed in that space. I mean, anyway. space, can I do like a quick... Please do. Quick tangent about lab design. Please, always, please do. Um, so um, there's this really great article about how labs are gendered in terms of the colors that they use, like particularly like laboratory equipment, all of the color spectrums for it are very much in the like blue, green, earth tones world that in the last yeah. century has gotten progressively gendered towards men. And so like one of the prevailing theories about like why women don't succeed in science, particularly in the like hard sciences or lab sciences, is because the spaces are gendered in such a way to make them feel like not welcome and not like a full yeah. participant in it. Um, Can I further tangent off your thing about color scheme, which is that one in six men is colorblind and one in 10 women are. So in predominantly male spaces, you have a higher ratio of those people being colorblind and therefore unable to pick interesting colors because they don't even know what they are. <laughs> I cite the military as an example of this. I cite educational settings, especially like STEM stuff. Do you know what I mean? It makes sense that like color wouldn't captivate your imagination if you can't see it in a way of mm -hmm. vibrancy. So like, why would you pick pastels if all you see is blues and greens? Anyway. That's fascinating. I had not thought about that. I was like... A higher ratio of men are colorblind than women. And so male spaces are probably going to be more drab colors anyway. For many reasons. There's a lot of other politics with color. Mm -hmm. It becomes a thing not to stand out. But yeah, I find that interesting. And the weird effects that you... I don't think anybody was malicious in saying women had to wear hats in the lab. But I think no one ever thought about it until she was like, no, this is stupid. And to their credit, they were like, yeah, that's stupid. We should just get rid of that rule. And they did. Um, while she's in college, she joins a suffrage group. 
and um, in her early 20s, I want to say, no, it's, yeah, it's maybe around the time she graduates, she uh, becomes reacquainted with this fellow named Stanley McCormick. Uh, McCormick is quite a name at this time because he is of the McCormick family of Chicago, who uh, had... His grandfather, I think, by this point, had invented a mechanical harvester for, like, farming equipment and formed the International Harvester Company and thus became so rich, so stupidly rich, that the McCormicks were, like, set up really mm-hmm. well. And thus the McCormicks and the Dexters were probably pretty acquainted all the time. And there's even, like, a story of, like, Catherine's dad helped Stanley's dad when they were younger, when their company was having financial trouble and he helped raise funds to get him out of debt. And then they stayed in Chicago and helped incorporate to Chicago wealth. So they're kind of like major mover and shakers in Chicago at the time. Um, They met in their teens at probably what I'm guessing was a very fussy, uh, stupid (laughs) coming out dance or something, (laughs) something with gloves and like champagne. Um, But then she's a student by this point. They meet again. He is into her. He pursues her. He's like, oh, my God. She said it felt like they had... He he picked up where they left off and was, like, super um, engaged and, like, oh, I'm so... I love you so much and you're so interesting. And she was kind of like, um, okay. I mean, thank you. I I like you, too. But, like, this is a little intense. Maybe, like, buy me some Um, coffee first. Maybe let's just, like, see where it goes. But she, she likes him. They keep going out. He proposes. Uh, she accepts. Uh, she uh, <laughs> she uh, ends it. He proposes again. She accepts. He en- they do this three times. So clearly there's like some tension or maybe like a little um, rom-com plot twist happening in her courtship with Stanley. But they do end up marrying in 1904. She had just graduated she was a little concerned because, like, I think in her in her other life, she would have tried to become a doctor, but mm. that definitely couldn't happen if you were married, especially married at this level of like rich, rich people. Mm-hmm. Like, there was expectations on both parties about what was expected of you in terms of like fam- family dynamic. Um, quickly, it becomes aware that the McCormick family that Stanley was a part of was um, what's the word I want to say dysfunctional. Maybe that's fair. Interesting. Let's go with that. Okay. Let's go with that. Maybe his mom was a religious zealot and his dad was a totalitarian jerk. And his his siblings were maybe described in later biographies as sociopaths. But, you know, Stanley was doing okay with just some mild-mannered mental health issues of his own. And he oh, quickly starts to sort of... <laughs> yeah, it's not great. He quickly starts to maybe deteriorate mentally once they're married um, for probably a range of reasons. And uh, Catherine sort of finds herself in the situation of like, oh, my God, this guy, I genuinely it seems like she genuinely liked and loved him um, is now I am now in this family that does not help your state of mental instability. And I clearly see that with all of these personalities happening over here. And then with I think what a lot of people thought is maybe um, the mismanagement of her brother and dad's illnesses left her with the need to help people through these kinds of health crises. 
in a way that she maybe didn't get a chance to earlier in her life because it was so sudden and so quick. Mm-hmm. So she really tries to stick by him and um, tries to get him away from his family because they're not helping. They kind of aggravate things and they have expectations of how she should deal with him and none of it's great. <laughs> none of it is good. And he, he continues to deteriorate. And his particular form of mental health issue, uh, they, they say it would probably be schizophrenia today. But this is 1906, so they don't have quite the knowledge or ability to deal with that in the way that we would now. And his particular uh, behaviors that would manifest made it really complicated for him to be around women and made it very fraught for them as a couple. And so it became very aware that he should be placed into care. And uh, this was after only like two years of being married. So she all of a sudden can't see her husband because he would not be okay. And she would not be okay. He would maybe like attack her. And, I don't know. It's problematic. So he goes into full-time care. And luckily because of his family's affluence, he's able to seek pretty good care of the time. Um, also one of his sisters was also in psychiatric care for a long time. So it's not even just like him. It's like Clearly, there's a genetic component in this particular family of how this all shakes out. Mm-hmm. Um, she stays married to him. And this kind of caused a lot of friction with the McCormick family because they were kind of like, you need to divorce him. You need to get out of the family. You're trying to mess things up. We'll deal with this. You're an outsider sort of stuff. You should get an annulment. And she's like, you guys are the problem. I'm not going to divorce him. He needs me because you are not helping the situation at all. And uh, she stays married, and Stanley doesn't try to divorce her either. Um, so while he is sort of confined, she is sort of independently wealthy because of her dad. And now this being married to Stanley does provide her some independence as well. So she kind of sets her sights on becoming um, more involved in women's rights movements of the time. So she... Uh, she had started suffrage or was participating in suffrage groups while in college and through her uh, beginnings with Stanley. And um, she starts to become involved with the various suffrage groups at the time of the turn of the 20th century, which maybe you can speak to this because you speak to it on previous episodes about how fraught it was in the early feminist movement of like racist nonsense and maybe questionable uh, methods of pursuing equal rights. But the main thing I want to talk about, well, one of the main things I want to talk about is the fact that there were two organizations that started out. There was, and they both have a similar name, which is like the National Women's Suffrage Association and the American Women's Suffrage Association. And one was basically like way more militant and the other was like, let's lobby and just get the states to give us the right to vote. And the other one was like, let's blow up mailboxes and do hunger strikes. And, and eventually... Is, that one, is the more militant one the American Association? No, it's the, national. The national, okay. Yeah, and then eventually, like, by the time Catherine's involved, they have merged. That merging caused the militant ones to schism alone in their own... until it even gets smaller and more mm-hmm. militant. And then this kind of... NWA, wait, NAWSA, National American Women's Suffrage Association, was born. Oh boy. And that is what she then participates in. And I'm sorry, that's probably the most boring couple of sentences I've ever said. Um, <laughs> 
but it took me a minute to understand it, and I just wanted everyone to know. So, she's now uh, a mover and shaker in this organization. She's uh, She knows several languages, and she's super... Um, there's there's stories of her like getting people involved and like having them pay their dues on time and getting the the association in good standing financially and therefore she kind of moves up the ranks in terms of like the organization she was like the secretary and then she's elected vice president and they uh kind of refocus their they refocus their issues on getting a federal amendment passed like they're over states doing it they want like a full on amendment to the constitution um this is you know she's in the 19 teens at this point so as we all know that goes pretty well and in 1920 the 19th amendment is ratified which is the main goal of the suffrage movement and so immediately after that she's like cool what's the next thing and the next thing is the one thing that i found her most interesting uh for which is her upbringing her parents, her mother's particular views on the subject, her marriage to Stanley and his siblings, um, and the general issue of raising children in the 19th and early 20th century made her really interested in safe, legal, and accessible birth control for women. She felt like it correctly, it like, uh, correctly, it directly, rather, correlated to the equality of women the second that women could be in control of both their health and their livelihood in that way they would be able to be on a more equal footing in the public and private world and this is not a uncommon thought at that time um birth control is becoming along with like the sort of thrust of new science becoming a thing there's all of this sort of upward momentum of how do we fix this problem of like infant mortality and mothers dying in childbirth and all of these sort of improvements? She, uh, she, yeah. And I think that uh, the other thing that I should mention a little more clearly is like she made a conscious effort with Stanley to not pursue having children, even though everyone kind of wanted her to. She made the conscious effort of like being like, if I get pregnant with Stanley, my child could have what Stanley has, and that is not a life for a child. So she made a conscious effort about her reproduction in a maybe more radical way than would have been acceptable at the time. So she's already kind of participating in this with her own life. Does and she, Stanley, I... Mm-hmm. Does she talk about that publicly at the time about deciding not to have kids? Not publicly in that way. I think a lot of mental illness was super stigmatized. I think the McCormicks also made it pretty hard for her. Um, yeah, yeah. I I just I know that it was a it was a it was a conscious effort on her part to be like I will not have children with you, and that even made her situation a little more precarious too. Because if you don't have a kid and you're married to this man, with a fraught relationship with his family. Mm-hmm. Super problematic. Um, she meets Margaret Sanger in 1917. Do you know Margaret Sanger? I think so. They're kind of always talked about together, these two. Yeah. And Margaret Sanger is equally kind of um, pro-contraception at the time. She is known for providing care for women um, 
in her youth, she uh, they actually meet at this trial of a guy who was arrested because he was passing out Margaret's pamphlets to women on the street. That's right. And at that time... Mm-hmm. Because it's obscene to talk about yes. birth control. Yes. Not only birth control, but basically anything like that. It falls under obscenity laws. Because mm-hmm. women's bodies generally are just obscene. And so... And so just to be clear, that's Margaret and Catherine's view of like a day out. Like, let's go to an obscenity law trial. That sounds dope. Um, they get along very well. McCormick starts uh, starts engaging in a little more radical acts with Sanger in that she starts smuggling diaphragms out of Europe to American women to be like the hookup. And... Um, this this smuggling is benefited by the fact that she speaks many languages. So, the, like, the countries there it was legal were sometimes not English-speaking. She can talk to all of them. Mm-hmm. She understands what they do and is able to explain it to the American women by having a biology degree. And then she has all this money to actually pay for them herself. So she's not only, like, doing the smuggling, she's also bankrolling all of it. Like, So it's like drug cartels, but for diaphragms. Yeah. You know, that's a good scene, isn't it? Just sewing them into a fur coat <laughs> over and over and over again. Anyway, um, at the same time, kind of like, well, I'm going to say like late 20s, late 20s, teens, late teens, 20s. Um, some U.S. states are starting to like get a little more lenient on obscenity laws and maybe the idea of contraception. Like as the world begins to modernize more and more, there's also kind of a little more relaxation culturally about all these things that Victorian times sort of found to be questionable. And um, in 1937, uh, the American Medical Association were uh, starting to loosen up and uh, she starts to form um, uh, the Planned Parenthood Federation for America. which becomes the basis of Planned Parenthood today. Um, so you can see like her pushing and cultural kind of receiving that at the same time. 1947, Dear Dear Stanley dies. Uh, at the time of his death, he is only, there's only two of, or he's one of two siblings left for the whole McCormick fortune, which is still quite substantial. And um, in his will, he left it to Catherine and the entirety of his fortune. And I don't know if there's a dynamic of this because he and his sister were the only ones that were left. And I wonder if there's like a male-female child Mm. thing happening with the estate because basically Catherine gets a lot of it, if not all of it. And he leaves her about $35 million at the time, which I did on my little calculator is $400 million today. It's a lot of money to just so have. So in 1947, and so Catherine's like, great, let's get bigger than diaphragms in a coat. <laughs> and she wants to see a birth control pill in her lifetime. And so she gets together with uh, Gregory Goodwin Pincus, great name, who is who's doing like hormonal therapy. There's also a tie-in with the fact that she thought Stanley throughout his life was maybe suffering from mental illness due to hormonal imbalances and like endocrine issues. So she had kind of a pre-interest in hormonal therapy to begin with, but then also seeing it as a way to contraception, she was like, oh, I'm so in. 
So she and Pincus get together, and she basically just gives him whatever money he needs to fund this research. Throws money at him. No, Well, not no questions asked. She was very involved, apparently. She was, like, mm-hmm. checking their documents and going to their labs and stuff and being like, what's going on? Um, and this does extremely well. And by 1957, he's succeeded in creating this pill that can regulate your cycle and thus, you know, prevent pregnancy. And the FDA, as we all know, approves this pill in 1960 and is known as now the pill is born. Um, and it sort of changes the world in a way because, I mean, for American women, I found a statistic that by 2010, 62% of women of reproductive age are using contraception. And of those women, 10, uh, 28% are using the pill, which is, I think, the most popular form mm-hmm. of the options. So... In, in numbers, that's 10.6 million women are using the pill. In that around a lot of people. 21st century. That's a ton of people. And not only women benefit, but men benefit as well. So, yeah, I will say um, Pincus's research at the time in the 50s was fraught with some issues that would not be acceptable today. There was questionable testing. There was um, subjects being not informed, if at all, about their participation in these tests. And um, there are cases of them doing it on patients in asylums, which is kind of bizarre because of Catherine's involvement with Stanley. But I guess, you know, a bunch of nonsense, a bunch mm-hmm. of, you know, early 20th century nonsense. Um she goes on, I mean, once she gets Stanley's, when she gets all this McCormick money, she really tries to do as much of, do as much as she can with it. And very often she's doing it in Stanley's name, not her own. So she funds a, a hospital for the mentally ill. She funds uh, research at Harvard Medical School. She funds... Um, money to she continues to fund money for Planned Parenthood Federation and uh, money at Stanford for women specifically who want to be doctors she provides money to arts and music organizations often as in Stanley's name and she also uh, puts money to gives money to MIT specifically for housing of women students to attend and they build a hall which is dedicated in 1968 um, just after she had passed away and it's Stanley McCormick Hall and it allowed for the number of women students to go up uh, four times what it could before so I think even then it was added on to with the remaining money she had left in her will so Mm -hmm. at her alma mater they were able to get 200 more Catherine McCormick's in Awesome. She passes away in 19, late 1967 at the age of 92. And her whole later life is spent being a huge philanthropist of the time with very specific causes. Um, but yeah, I wanted to open it up because you've mentioned it before of like the first wave of feminism being sort of incredibly problematic. Um, yeah, these these organizations with the WSA, basically the NWSA and the A, all of them, 
all of them were problems, um, mainly because they were formed in the mid-1800s when America was full of problems. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the organizations opposed the 15th Amendment, which allowed African-American men to vote. There was a really big grudge against the fact that there was all this kind of, like, what you were talking about with caste systems. I think there's something similar in America, right? Especially in the 1800s, where it's, like, white men white women, black men, black women, and then they weren't even ready for any other people of color. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's all these stories about when Asian people first started immigrating, they didn't know how to classify them, and therefore they were white for a while. Do you know this? A little bit, yeah. It's it's all bananas. It's all bananas in this time. The 19th century is insane. So um, I just wanted to make sure we said that because, you know, sometimes we... You know, sort of only know gloss the good that. about people, but it's also important to kind of state that. And, um, yeah, I just found that interesting. So one example of that kind of caste system taking place was in all these marches that would happen. That is how they marched in order. Did you know that? Did yeah, you say that, that in a previous podcast? I, I don't know if I said that, but they made um, black suffragettes walk in the back of the parades. Yeah. Like straight it up, would go just put them in the white back women, of the parade. Then, like, male, white men allies, and then African-American women. And the way that um, maybe the more uh, forward-thinking suffragettes got to get around that was by um, making women march state by state. And I found that that was the way out of that sort of Mm -hmm. tendency to push black women to the back. So they were like, okay, well, Illinois gets to march together. And then all of a sudden it doesn't matter because you had to integrate based on your state. Um, I'm not saying that happened enough or fast enough, but at least it happened, you know. Yeah, that's Um, fascinating. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was great. I will say when she died, um, it did not make news. It did not, it did not uh, pass as it would have today, I think. Um, Probably because, let's see, it's 1968, so as we said earlier in the po- last week's podcast, that uh, quite a year. And um, I think the important thing to know is that uh, there's this one historian who I read about, um, Andrea Tone, who talked about her. And I just want to read a quote from her because it's really good. She said uh, of her bankrolling the pill specifically, she was... Um, At the time, the pharmaceutical companies, which had historically been involved in some kinds of birth control production, like condom production and diaphragm production, saw the pill project also as too controversial. Many large companies had passed on the opportunity to develop the pill, including Pfizer and Merck, uh, because they just didn't want to touch it. And so, were it not for McCormick, it's unclear how the pill would have been developed. She deserves credit for single-handedly financing one of the most important developments of the 20th century. So these giant corporations at the time wouldn't spend the money on this kind of thing. And so without her sort of affluence, we wouldn't have 10 million women with oral contraception today. Amazing. Fascinating. And as someone who has taken the pill, thank you, Catherine. I appreciate it. I don't take it anymore, but I did for a little while. It was nice. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Yeah. Do you want an interesting pill design-related fact to close out this little section? Um, Only if it has to do with why they're blue. I don't. I don't know why. Why they're the blue. placebo week is blue? Um, but 
apparently the um the like calendar the way they come packaged in such a way that like it's really easy to keep track of like when you take it and like if you miss a day um Mm -hmm. was some guy in illinois whose wife had started taking them and was constantly like either forgetting if she'd missed a day or something because they used to just come in a bottle and the advice Mm -hmm. was if you forgot or you were unclear you had to dump it all out count all of them subtract it by the number that were supposed to have originally been in the bottle to figure out if you've like missed a day and so it just was like meant like when you got it yeah sorry yeah no 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 yeah yeah yeah. um and so he was just like well mm -hmm. i'm i'm just gonna make something but when he went he he, so he designed the like the disc packaging version um Mm. and shopped it around to a bunch of big pharmaceutical companies and they were like no that's ridiculous why would why would we do that it makes no sense like put things in bottles that's where pills go <laughs> yeah it's also a better fit for your purse i'm just saying you could slide in a pocket easier mm-hmm. but yeah i mean that being yeah no it's um yeah the pill go figure one woman paid for the pill you guys i had no and idea coincidentally her husband's family really paid for the pill which i'm sure they would be super proud of yeah so like so rural america in buying large tractors and other agricultural machinery in effect, like bankrolled the development of the birth control pill. And Planned Parenthood. How's that for irony? That's incredible. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> you reap what you sow? Hey. I see what no? you did there. No? Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Yay, birth control. Yay, birth control. Let's take All a right. quick break. Okay. Go for it, Michael. Well, this is so great. Our producer, Jen, was pretty pretty emphatic that I needed to do My Woman this week. And I can see why now. Because mine is also a problematic late 19th, early 20th century American feminist. Oh, my God. Um, How weird is that? Jen. Nailed it. little puppeteer. I love it. Okay. Um, so um, her name is Martha Carey Thomas. Um but she hates the name Martha, and so she always goes at, by M. Carrie Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's born in Baltimore in uh, January of 1857. Um, her dad is a doctor named James, um, and her mom, Mary, comes from a prominent Philadelphia merchant family because it's the 19th century, so you still have prominent merchant families. <laughs> no, we don't use merchant anymore, do we? We really don't. And it, you, I only I, hear it with, like, marines, merchant marines. I don't even know what that is. And like that, it does quite have the same ring to it of being, you know, from a merchant family. Um, no, yeah. But they're also um, they're Quakers. So in addition to being sort of wealthy, they come from um, a very uh, strong religious background. Um, Quakers. Um, I grew up around a lot of Quakers. Uh, Philadelphia being sort of like one of the bigger areas of them. Um, they're really lovely people for the most part. Um, the impression I get from reading about her is that like. Her family was, like, very religious. um, Mm. And, like, Orthodox Quakers are, like, not big fans of music or drama or anything like that. Um, A little bit more austere. May I I just say that Richard Nixon was a Quaker? So. Really? How's that that for a fact? I had. That's absurd. That is deeply absurd. Yeah. He's maybe a 20%. Yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because they're also supposed to be pacifists, which is a thing. I mean. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. He bombed Cambodia, but he's a Quaker. Keep going. Okay. He um, would say he inherited a lot of those conflicts, and so he had to see them through. I'm guessing, but we don't need to talk about right him him right now. Sorry. No, he seems to be coming up a lot these last couple of weeks. I know. I think that's my fault. <laughs> I pick a lot of like late 60s, 70s people. He's kind of a big deal then. A little bit. But, yeah. Um. But so she is sort of growing up in this very religious household. Her aunt and uncle are like sort of internationally famous evangelists. Um, And her aunt also is at the same time like a a very big feminist, which I found incongruous. But from what I understand, that's not as big of an opposition in this period as like one might think of it today. Like we don't often think of like evangelicals as being like the most progressive on gender issues. Um, but apparently she was both wow. like a progressive. If feminist. you ever want to go into politics, Michael, you could really nail it because you have a, such a like clear way of saying things without being aggressive about it. <laughs> Whereas I like just go blah and like say things that are probably, I should apologize for later. But you just like have a nice delicate way of like going around the thing and then still calling it what it is. You know what I mean? Thank you. I yeah. feels like that's well my done. Like, stage management training coming through. Yeah, that's fair. Well done. Well done. Um, the other really interesting thing about her childhood that I was reading is that, so she has nine younger siblings who live to adulthood, um, and that her biographer notes that she developed a distaste for large families, um, and would apparently sort of rail Wouldn't against you? them. Um, Wouldn't you if you were one of 10? I oh my God, that survived. So wait, love, how many? I just have one. I've got one sibling and it's great. It's the perfect number. <sighs> big yeah big. i think like anything over six five or six is like oof. it's a bit much that's not a house anymore that's just like yeah uh, they should have checked in with and- Catherine mccormick about some family planning yeah right yeah um, okay one of okay that's a lot of siblings yeah um and at the age of seven um she has this sort of like horrific accident where she gets really badly burned making lunch um, with the family cook on an open stove, which reminded me of what happened to Jeanette Picard's sister who died after like getting burned while sort of playing near a stove. And it kind of made mm. me wonder this thing that I hadn't really thought about is like open stoves and dresses, I'm assuming caused like a lot more deaths. Or than how I about your long, being. how about the whole fashion trend that you couldn't put your hair up until you were old enough. So you had these long Victorian hair just down the back and then you're running around the house with a ribbon in it, and it's just like, yeah. And you know all that stuff they were making on their clothes was like flammable, fire hazards everywhere, just covered in you know, just covered in flammables. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so while she's so, recovering from this pretty horrible accident, it takes her about a year to get better, um, and she spends a lot of that year reading, and that's sort of the moment where she realizes that she really likes learning and is super passionate about education. Um, and so when she's a teenager, her family enrolls her in the Howland Institute, which is a Quaker boarding school up in Ithaca, New York. And she really excels there. She um, does a lot of really amazing work. And so one of her teachers is like, hey, like Cornell is right down the street. You should go there. Like you should go to university. Um, and she goes home to Baltimore to dad and is like, hey, so I think I want to go to Cornell. And he's like, no, no, my daughter is not going to college. In, in oh. sort of a, a similar way to um, Catherine's like, no, you're going to go to finishing school and like, we're going to marry you off and that's going to be that. Um, 
but both her and her mom are pretty relentless about it and eventually they wear him down and he's like fine yeah you can go um and the and so rather than just like entering as a first year though she spends a year studying for the entrance examinations and when she takes them she's admitted as a junior so she basically like skips the first two years of college just by like testing out of things basically nice um and so she is admitted to sage college which is the women's college at cornell um and then graduates in 1880 in 1877 with her bachelor's degree um and at this point she's like well i hands down like i gotta go to grad school like i really like this i want to get my phd like i want to do research i want to do the whole like academic life um and in baltimore What what was her degree in her degree, I couldn't find exactly what it's in, but her graduate work is going to end up being um, in what we would call nowadays like linguistics, um, but what okay. they called philology. Um, so sort of studying languages. So I imagine it was either something in English or um, classics. Say that word again. Philology. That's just hateful. So mean. That's such a mean word to make people say. Okay, um, keep going. <laughs> it's um we can if She's we want get into the whole about how philology is basically like the basis of most modern academic fields. Um, oh my god! And it's, stop saying it. It's stressing me out. <laughs> okay. It's okay. Moving on. Um, but so she returns to Baltimore and luckily for her, uh, Johns Hopkins University is just getting started at this point in Baltimore. It's this new kind of radical idea for what a university can be. They don't have any undergraduates. It's just graduate students. And it's based off the German model of the university, which is like graduate seminars, working really closely with faculty and moving towards getting a PhD as like a research degree, which. Can I ask a stupid question? Sure, it's not stupid, but yeah, what do you got? Johns Hopkins is always correlated as medical in my head. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Is that because they are super prestigious medical school as well as like other disciplines? Yes, that's my understanding. And we're actually going to get to Johns Hopkins Medical School in just a second here. Sorry. No, no, no. You're you're so fine. Um, So, but yeah, no, because it is like the first one of these like research universities in the U.S. And so it kind of gets this advantage of like, for the first decade or so is there it's like if you want to do any kind of research in the u.s you go there and so they get a pretty big head start on graduate studies that a lot of other sort of elite schools are playing catch-up to and even like harvard spends like the last three decades of the 19th century basically catching up to johns hopkins in terms of like their graduate programs um but she of course being a woman it's like well great i'm gonna go do this and they're like hmm kind of We'll like we'll let you in, but you can't take classes and you can't go to seminars with men. So like, you're techni- so all of them. So none of, like you, you you can't take classes. Period. You get a seminar for one. Um, and that's actually exactly what they do. They're like you. They basically give her like a year of private directed studies, but that's basically just like meeting with professors and reading stuff on her own. She's like, well, I can do that by myself. I don't need to be here. And so she leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's around this. Mm-hmm. Sorry to keep interrupting you. No, but what do you think? What like what? What do you think the reason was? Like about to the men get thing? her out. Well, to get her out of the school and like make her not like to push her out by giving her unrealistic expectations, or to like weirdly protect her, or was it like 
you're going to distract all these men in this class by just sitting there because we can't have more than one thing happen at a time. I don't know. What, I, I don't either. Like, this is the point where, like, my empathy as, like, a person interested in history fails. And I just, like, <laughs> can't. It, it's just a thing where I, like, I can't understand, like, what about, like, having a woman in a class with you would be so radically disruptive to the educational process that you just can't have it. Um, and I think it's it's sort of a mix of both. It's like kind of protecting her, kind of protecting the men in a weird way. Um, yeah, it's almost like they're saying like it'd be the same as admitting a circus elephant in the classroom, and then all the men in the classroom would just be like, "Oh my god, look at that thing in here! Mm-hmm. I can't concentrate on my studies." It's like, I mean, how are you? Okay, <sighs> why ask? rhetorical questions okay great so she's like peace out i don't need this she's like peace out i don't need this um okay and at the same time that she's peacing out from johns hopkins she's sort of starting to develop this really close friend circle um which is going to become a really important part of her life moving forward um the way her biography frames it is they will serve as vital emotional intellectual and financial support throughout her life um and it's uh these four women, um, one of whom she met at school uh, named Bessie Tabor King, and then the other three are Mary Elizabeth Garnett, Julia Rebecca Rogers, and Mamie McCall Gwynn, um, all waspy Protestants, so they all have three names. Why do we all have three names? Yeah. It's it's a, like, a Protestant upper-class thing in America at this point. Yeah, you know what it else is? It's for serial killers. Do you know why? No. So that you can really specify the person that did the crazy thing. So in order for like John, pick a serial killer. Like maybe there's another Theodore Bundy who didn't do terrible things. Well, no, Ted Bundy's not a good example because he's only two names. Let me think of this again. John Wayne Gacy. That's a good one. So if there's another like John Gacy in the country, um, he can't be held accountable because you don't have that middle name correlation now that being said it's not all of them clearly but like Mm -hmm. it's a way for cops to like help out fellow citizens who didn't do terrible things and then you know have horrible things happen to them now probably on the internet but (laughs) i guess that's what those guys and these women have in common so there we go (laughs) amazing segue sorry about it keep going um so she meets these women they sort of mm-hmm. form like a discussion group in a way. So they meet every other week on Friday. They discuss the literary and philosophical topics that are sort of going on at the moment. And in a way they mm-hmm. sort of act as encouragements for each other. And so it's at this mm-hmm. point that Thomas is like, hmm, I think I should go to Europe for graduate school, which at the time is a pretty common response for young men interested in becoming academics because Johns Hopkins is really the only option if you want to get a PhD in the US. But there's all these German universities that are the like hot shot place to go if you want to get a PhD. And it's mm. super common for men to do this, incredibly rare for women to do it. But of course, being the sort like of most driven, motivated person she is, she's like, I don't care. I'm going to go do this. Um, mm-hmm. And so she enrolls at the University of Leipzig in Germany and is studying for her PhD um, in linguistics uh what year are we in we are in the early 1880s okay not super terrible yet okay great Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not yet but as she's earning the degree the german government passes a law that forbids women to get graduate degrees never mind it's a terrible time (laughs) just kidding 
Um, different, <laughs> different, terrible. Yay. Um, and so she's like, well, great. This is awesome. Um, and then transfers to the University of Zurich, where she eventually does get her PhD in 1882 with highest you're allowed to get one there? Because you're allowed to get one there. She is the first woman to get a PhD from the University of Zurich. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably because she's allowed to. mm, As if, like... When you allow women to get PhDs, then all of a sudden they get them. Isn't that weird? What a correlation. And this, of course, leaves her, like, super both, like, embittered, but also, like, passionate about getting more women access to education. She's like, I had to jump all through, through these ridiculous hoops. People shouldn't have to do that. And that sets her on this path of like working in women's education. And that will end up being sort of her life's work is like trying to expand access, mm. not to everyone. And that will become very clear in a moment, but to a particular group of women to make sure that they have access to a really high quality, robust education at the college and university level. But before we do that, we should talk about her being a closeted lesbian. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Um, so as part of this trip to Europe to get her PhD, she's traveling with Mamie Gwynn, who's one of the women from her circle in Baltimore. And the way that the sort of official biography on... Wait, what are her three names? I'm losing track. Um, her th- three names. Her three names are Mamie McCall Gwynn. That is such an old lady name. Yes. There's yes, no more is. Mamies. There it's a great aren't. baby name, though. Little baby Mamie. That's adorable. Okay. And if we just want to add to confusion... Um, M. Carrie Thomas, when she's young, doesn't go by M. Carrie Thomas. She goes by Mamie. So, like, one letter away from Mamie. (laughs) Mamie and Mamie. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) That's terrible. Oh, no. That's terrible. So, just to, like, cut down on confusion, I'm just going to call her Thomas or Gwen. Oh, my God. Uh, Mamie and Mamie. What a duo that is. Can you see the 80s sitcom in your mind? Because I I can. can. And it's Um, great. A lot of side ponies, a lot of like, you know, weird athletic wear on like wristbands and sweatbands. And like, mm-hmm. I'm Mamie. I'm yeah. Mamie. <laughs> and the best, oh, yeah. the best part it. about it is that like Gertrude Stein actually sort of picks up on their relationship and it actually ends up serving as the basis for a she Gertrude would. Stein novel. Mm-hmm. Um, because what happens is that um, Gwyn goes with Thomas to Europe. And the way the sort of like official biography describes it is they're like housemates or traveling companions. Um, but recent scholarship is pretty clear. Like they were sort of like in a long-term romantic relationship. Um, mm. But Gwyn is going to go on to marry a man in the early 1900s. And so there's yeah. then this love triangle between the two of them um, and Thomas. And that love triangle is the thing that serves as the basis for one of Gertrude Stein's novels. Um, and it's this sort of like passionate but very like quiet thing um not ever sort of publicly acknowledged as anything more than like a good friendship um Hmm. and it's it's the really interesting thing about it is that this is a sort of a period there's this like brief period in american history from like the early 1900s through the 1920s where like Mm. queer people are becoming much more visible especially in major metropolitan areas so fascinating yeah, so you have that like kind these, of era. these huge mm-hmm. like drag balls. You have people who are like very fluidly identifying with their sexuality, and like a lot of them very publicly so. Mm-hmm. Um, but the like middle and upper classes, especially in the, the sort of like Protestant establishment world that Thomas mm-hmm. is living in, are very much not a part of that particular movement. So they're still very like proper, very heteronormative, in all of the ways that you would sort of expect 
that group. Well, and it's like a very, a very like genuine interest in it in a non um, threatened way of like scientific communities kind of reaching out to sort of not figure it out, but inquire more about why uh, people would be less binary than what most quote unquote most people would do. Or just like all of that kind of research at the time is very interesting because there's genuinely a capacity of curiosity there. Yeah. And then it just gets totally stamped down very quickly. Like, exactly. nope, we're not ready for that yet. Nope, nope. Yeah. Nope, we're going to fight some wars about it. Nope. And there's a, the sort of out. like the re- in the early 20s, obscenity laws and sodomy laws start getting enforced mm. again, um, sort of tied in with a lot of stuff around prohibition that makes all of it like really, really difficult for yeah. queer communities. Um, but so Thomas yeah. is very much in that world of like, still very proper, still can't actually like be open about it because of the social circles that she's in. Um, and so she never speaks openly about her relationship with Gwyn and following Gwyn's marriage, um, she gets into a long-term relationship with Mary Garrett, who's one of the other women from Baltimore. Um, and they live together for almost a decade before Mary dies in 1915. Quite a circle she cultivated. Oh, yes. Um, they had a lot in common, didn't they? Well, that's the thing. So the way it's sort of framed is like her friend from college introduces her to these other women in Baltimore and they start this like philosophical circle. But another way to look at it is like... Is that code? Well, that's kind of what a lot of more recent scholarship is. Like her lover from school introduces her to this sort of like not very open, but like very sort of like established lesbian community in this particular milieu in Baltimore. So she is like very participating in it. Yeah. So in that sense, it's like like really sweet. Um, And Mary is actually going to leave all of her um all of her inheritance to thomas when she passes away in 1915 um so m carrie thomas will in addition to like all of her stuff will also inherit a really significant chunk of change um from mary garrett who will be able to like do things wow, with these them two later. are very similar yes and we're gonna get yeah, even more crazy. so in a second um, did she sew diaphragms into a coat no but she did participate in racist suffrage movements Oh, yeah, that sadly binds a lot of people at this time. Yes, it does. Um, Right. And so Thomas gets her PhD in 1882, and in 1883, she returns to the U.S. The next year, she gets appointed dean at Bryn Mawr College, which is a new women's college that's being founded by a group of Quakers in the Philadelphia suburbs. Quakers! Yes. I love it. Um, it's sort of right next to Haverford College and a little bit down the road first from Swarthmore College, which are the two other big um, Quaker colleges in the Philadelphia region. Um, and the idea being that Bryn Mawr will sort of s- serve as a women's college, but at the same level academically as those colleges. So rather than being more of a finishing school or like a teacher's prep school, like a lot of women's colleges at this time were, it's like, no, this is like a undergraduate liberal arts college like women are going to go and they're going to get bachelor's degrees here and that's what they're Mm. going to be about um thomas has originally applies to be president but gets turned down because the board of trustees which includes like her father and some of her relatives are like we don't think you're necessarily experienced enough for this but they make her dean and professor of literature um Mm. And so she's going to spend the first decade or so in those roles um working with james rhodes who's the first president Odd to think that the like the first president of a women's college is a man, but well, someone's got to get in here and lead. Exactly. Um, 
And so they start laying out this really rigorous curriculum. Um, and the, the sort of the whole focus of it is like, we want to be as prestigious as the Ivy League, like as rigorous, like it is just as difficult to get into Bryn Mawr as it is to get into Harvard or University of Pennsylvania or anything like that. Um, so sort of drawing on her experiences from Johns Hopkins and from the German universities, um, there's going to be a really challenging entrance examination. All of the faculty are going to be required to have PhDs. Um, and sort of most radically is there's going to be graduate studies both at Bryn Mawr, but then also scholarships for women who graduate from Bryn Mawr to go to Europe to study and get their PhDs as well. So mm. really trying to tackle in a very specific way, the problems that M. Carrie Thomas faced trying to get her education, Burmar, in a way, is trying to rectify those issues as well as possible. Um, and at the same time that they're doing that, they're also founding a school in Baltimore called the Burmar School, which is specifically designed to prepare young women to take the Burmar entrance exams. Because um, they were like, well, if we're going to have these really high standards, we want to make sure that there are students prepared to meet those standards. And so they found the school, which is still running in Baltimore, although it doesn't have quite the same relationship to the college anymore um, in 1885 with the idea that like the final exams for this prep school is you take the Bryn Mawr entrance exams and you can't mm. graduate from the school unless you pass those exams. But if you pass those exams, you get to go to Bryn Mawr, um, which is a really interesting model that like in a lot of ways colleges have been moving away from in the last like mm. century and a half. Like it used to be the relationship between prep schools and colleges was much closer. Often they'd be the same institution. Um, yeah. Like Georgetown Prep, which has been in the news a lot recently uh, because of it, one of its more famous, if less illustrious, alumni um, up until the 19-teens, early 1920s, um, was the same institution as Georgetown University. Like students mm. would enter, like if campus was even sort of on the same location. They'd come do Georgetown prep and then go right to Georgetown College is sort of one continuous thing. Um, mm. And so in a way, this is sort of some of the last vestiges of that kind of idea that like, we will have a prep school specifically for this college. Yeah. Bryn Mawr? Mm-hmm. Named, named why Bryn Mawr? Bryn Mawr, so it's, it's such an odd name. Yes. The, the history behind this name is one of the like weirder uh, little things. So Bryn Mawr is the name of the train station that, um, the college is located near. It is Bryn Mawr means big hill in Welsh. Uh, the reason it is called that is because the guy who I knew it was Welsh. There's a weird Y in there. It mm-hmm. all makes sense. Okay, great. Um, but the the guy who owned the train company that ran the line that went out to Bryn Mawr really liked Wales, and so he just renamed all of the train stations these Welsh names. Um, and so all of the nearby towns ended up having to rename themselves because no one could figure out how to get there because all of the train station names were in Welsh. Bryn Mawr, Big Hill, Big got Hill. it. Um, and it is a very Good. accurate statement. If you go to the campus, um, th- walking from the bottom of the hill where the like sports facilities and the science building is to the top of the hill where like the old central office is, is a hike. Like mm-hmm. dozens of vertical feet up. That is deeply unpleasant to do in the middle of winter. Um, and- That's how you build character. Exactly. Um, And at the same time that they're founding a college and opening a prep school, um, the same group also organizes a fundraising drive to create a medical school at Johns Hopkins, with the idea being that the condition for their donations is that the school is open to men and women equally. Um, And so they are like, basically they're like, this is a problem. We would like women doctors. So we're going to go out and we're going to create a medical school that is required to have 
female students. Booyah! Yeah. So love that. They're just they're go getters. They're doing so much all at the same time, sort of leveraging all of their money and privilege from their social circles in Baltimore to get this college up and running, to get this school up and running, and to get Johns Hopkins Medical School. Um, and because of that, Bryn Mawr College and Johns Hopkins are going to end up having like a really close relationship for a long time, um, just because M. Carrie Thomas is really involved in Bryn Mawr, and she's really involved with Johns Hopkins. Um, and she's going to get even more involved in 1894 um, when the first president, James Rhodes, dies and she assumes the presidency. Um, it's apparently a very close election, the Board of Trustees, because they still don't think, even though she's basically been running the college for a decade, they don't necessarily think a woman is up to the task, even though it's a woman's college. Um, and they also have some um, reservations about some of her uh, personal qualities, which we'll get to in like just a moment. Like all of her long-term roommates that she probably had. See, the thing I find so interesting is that the long-term roommates don't seem to be the problem. It's more that she has a bit of a reputation for being a totalitarian as, a, as like a boss. She does not play play well with others if others don't agree with her, um, mm. which is actually going to become like a huge, huge issue at Bryn Mawr to the point where like about 20 years into her tenure, the faculty write an open letter in the Philadelphia Inquirer her and basically accusing her of being a tyrant. Um, and so there's this like huge publicity flap all over the Philadelphia region about, you know, M. Carrie Thomas being a dictatorial ruler at her college. Whoa. Yep. Um, it's intense. She's, as we'll see shortly, she's a lot in a lot of ways. Um, but first, the like the like the positive things. Um, mm-hmm. So she assumes the presidency of Bryn Mawr in 1894 um, and is going to spend the next three decades or so turning it into the school that she's envisioned. So maintaining these incredibly high standards. Uh, develops what's called the group system, which is uh, the way that Johns Hopkins runs. But it's basically where you choose a major, and then rather than picking electives, you, that major is sort of structured for you. So you take certain classes in a certain sequence to like be a chemistry major or a French major or something like that. Um, all the students at this time are required to take Greek, Latin, and then two out of the three of German, French, or Italian. And you had to pass an exam in those to graduate. So all of their graduates are walking out speaking four languages or being able to read four languages, um, which as someone who struggles with like the one I've got already is deeply impressive. Um, She's going to found the Graduate School of Social Work, which is one of the first of its kind in the country, um, and open a summer school for female industrial workers with the idea of providing a space to sort of empower these women who are often not in a place to get an education to like not only learn skills and get knowledge, but also sort of bring them together as a group, help coalesce identities and sort of learn techniques for organizing, um, which I think is like just a really cool thing for a college to involve itself in. Um, Mm -hmm. Less cool from my perspective, although like deeply meaningful, um, is that she works on the college board. So she's one of the, um, the founding members of the college board, which we all affectionately know from having suffered through the SATs at some point. Um, Mm. And it originally starts out as an organization meant to standardize entrance examinations. So prior to the early 1900s, every college had its own entrance exam for the most part. And so if you wanted to go to like a prestigious East Coast university, if you wanted to apply to more than one, you needed to take multiple exams. 
And that often meant preparing different material. So the exams, it wouldn't be the way the SAT is where it's like critical thinking or like problem solving. Mm -hmm. It's like you needed to have read these five books or like worked with this chemistry textbook or like know mm -hmm. this amount of mathematics. And so it was really frustrating, especially for sort of the elite private schools that were preparing students for multiple colleges. Like they couldn't teach to the Harvard entrance exam and the Yale entrance exam and the University of Pennsylvania entrance exam because they were all different. And so it sort of left mm. the high schools in this weird place. It frustrated colleges because it meant they weren't getting people who were super well prepared for them. And so in like 1902, the college board is founded with the idea of like, we'll have one standard set of examinations. Everyone can take so the So it's their fault we now have an SAT? Yes. They're, they're the people who in the mid-1920s are going to decide that like what we really need is to stop testing people on what they know and start seeing how well they think. And that's where the SAT Ugh. comes from. Um, and if we want, we can talk about like the deeply sort of racist and classist assumptions built into the early SATs. Um, but I, that's a, a wormhole that I don't you should know. Put that on your T-shirts. You're going to make for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, do you want to talk about the racist and problematic part of this, or should we just move on? <laughs> it's a long road and perpetual. Um, yes. Great. Um, and the other really so cool thing. We, she's blessed us with the SAT. Blessed us with the it. SATs. Um, and then also actively encourages Bryn Mawr's self-government organization, which is the first sort of student-led, student-enforced honor policy in the country. So Bryn Mawr mm. students set their own student conduct policy. They enforce it. Um, they're allowed to schedule their own exams. Um, and they sort of have this like really deeply instilled honor code that she is sort of a huge part of encouraging um, and making sure that like mm. the students have a really big voice. Um, and at the same time, that she's doing all of these things, she is also really active in the suffrage movement. Um, very clearly, like, the white women's suffrage movement, um, but she's a founding right. member of the College Equal Suffrage League, which is basically, like, the uh -oh. college chapter of the national suffrage organizations. Um, and she's working with the Association of Collegiate Alumnae, which is later renamed the American Association of University Women and the International Federation of University Women. So she is sort of this, like, mm -hmm. huge figure in women's higher education at this time. Okay. And then thus getting their numbers up into the national scene. Yes. Mm -hmm. But, here's the but. Mm. She is also an outspoken white nationalist and anti-Semite. Oh no. Yeah. We were doing so good. We were doing so oh, good, but here no. we are. Um, oh, no, that's not very Quaker. No, and that's the thing that I find so fascinating about her particular situation is like there's this thing of like most white people from her situation at this time are going to be racist and they're probably going to be anti-semitic that's just like kind of the cultural expectation but she is like a little bit or more than a little bit outside the norm to the point where like some members of her board of trustees were like hey this isn't cool like you can't do this this is too racist for the early 1900s and when, That's bold. when people, when like other white people are telling you that it's too racist, like yeah, you might be going a little far. Yeah. Um, 100%. So, oh, yeah. Oh, so like, for example, um, during a convocation speech she gave at Bryn Mawr in 1916, she said, quote, if the present intellectual supremacy of the white races is maintained, as I hope that it will be for centuries to come. I believe that it will be because there are the only races that have seriously begun to educate their women, end quote. Oh, my God. Yeah. No. And it, it gets better. No. 
same she should get she's the poster child for eugenics that's nice that's yep good. no and literally so mania like, is short for maniac cool now we know all right keep going um and like just a couple lines later in the same speech um she maintains that the immigration of quote backwards people of europe talking in this case about like people from the balkans um czechs southern yeah. italians and the mixing of races <laughs> quote <laughs> endangered our great position among the nations of the world oh girl mm-hmm. the less white people ruined it for the white people is that what we're doing? just to distill it down oh girl come on yeah. come on um hey. so she takes these white nationalists and anti-semitic views and puts them into practice in running the college um, so she's actively discouraging departments from hiring Jewish, Jewish faculty and blocks the cool. admission of Jewish students. Um, yeah. She does the same thing for African-Americans, including at one point to go as far as to send um, Jesse Redmond Fawcett, who's an African-American student who had won a scholarship to attend Bryn Mawr. She sends her to Cornell and helps pay Fawcett's tuition rather than let her come to Bryn Mawr. Because okay. mm-hmm. that makes sense. Cornell right? now tells that story proudly. Mm-hmm. This is what they do. Yes. Oh, come on. Ugh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. So I'm she... glad all those lessons she learned about being a distraction in college were just like, whatever. Yeah. So that's the like the, the deeply frustrating thing about her is like you want her to be like, oh, you faced all this discrimination as a woman. That will yeah. give you more empathy for these other people. And it doesn't seem that it did. Um, no. And so sort of, of in the, the spirit of colleges reckoning with their history, um, Bryn Mawr College has been trying to deal with, like, how do we talk about her? Because um, mm. up to, like, two years ago, there were two buildings on campus named after her. There were some awards named after her. Um, mm-hmm. She was, like, a huge part of the college's history and identity um, because mm-hmm. she, in a, in a lot of ways, like, single-handedly made Bryn Mawr College what it is. But at the same mm-hmm. time racist white nationalist anti-semite we've decided pretty collectively that we're not okay with those things so like Mm -hmm. that challenge for them has been like how to reconcile with the fact that like she is central to who they are as an institution while at the same time being like we don't agree with these things that she believed and held really firm a lot of colleges are going through that isn't uh princeton dealing with that with woodrow wilson stuff Mm -hmm. we should be and we should be clear woodrow wilson also taught at Bryn so, like, check that box, too. Yeah. Nice, A nice yeah. racist history professor. <laughs> they probably got along great. She um, hated him, apparently. This is my, like, my favorite bit of petty, like, early 20th century thing is, like, M. Carrie Thomas does not get along with so many people, but very specifically shits on Princeton and the University of Pennsylvania <laughs> endlessly like you read some of her letters in and around the college board and she's very clear like we will not sign on to this if the standards are the standards that are at princeton or at upenn our standards are higher than that we don't give the like sort of bullshit stuff that they let slide there we have standards we don't let that Whoa. fly and it, it is like almost worded that strongly like she has words to say about princeton and upenn and couldn't stand Woodrow Wilson. He teaches at Bryn Mawr for like a year before she kicks him down the road. Outs him. Yeah. Oh my god, that's great. I love that. Yeah, so that's the thing. Like she has these like these redeeming qualities, moments. these moments, and at the same time, those are in tension with these like 
really horrible things that she believes in this like horrible way that she treats people and so mm-hmm. it's the really complicated legacy um she retires from the college in 1922 and she spends the next decade traveling with the money that mary garrett gave to her um, and working on political issues like the anti-war movement and the equal rights amendment um she dies in 1935 just about a month after Bryn Mawr celebrates its 50th anniversary what an odd little woman right she is just yeah. this like bundle Equal of contradictions anti-war hateful <laughs> yes it, yeah people are weird people are complex yeah and I think that's the, more than anything the thing I'm taking away from this particular episode is like people are really complicated and it's the mm. temptation that I totally understand emotionally to like condemn or laud people and like put them mm-hmm. into the category of like this person is great or this person is awful is mm-hmm. really tempting but oftentimes doesn't really work and i know we on this podcast have been pretty consistent about like we find these women who we think are really great and like should be appreciated but there yeah. are also these women who like have these really amazing contributions to history and also this really painful harmful history that they participated in as well yeah and saying all of it is helpful because then it just like clarifies a lot more yeah moving forward and just yeah i mean it's good and bad to humanize your hero right because the second you know like they're a person it makes them more redeemable and also more um fallible Mm -hmm. you know what i mean when you hold them the same standards as yourself yeah but um, yeah. And, like, I think of, like, Ching Shi from one of our earlier episodes, like, right. badass pirate Killed queen. Killed a lot of people. A lot of people. Yeah. And, like, that, but that has this, like, weirdness of, like, being removed. It's a different country. Mm-hmm. We, I personally don't know any, like, pirate lords in my day-to-day life. Yeah. Um, right. But I'm, like, intimately familiar with college professors. So, like, right. there's not that kind of distance that it makes it easy and comfortable to sort of condemn. It's like, no, like this, I almost definitely know people like this in my life. They might Hmm. not be as racist as anti-Semitic, but like are problematic people who like have done some important things for the institutions they work for, but have also hold really harmful opinions. Yeah. The eugenics movement is like a great, uh, well to pull from in terms of like historical weirdness because it just it, it tied into so many things and also was the byproduct of manipulated science in such a way mm-hmm. that's fascinating. Where it's just it it held up so many stupid wrong ideas on the on this like weird manipulation of facts. You know, I I find it an interesting time like the 1890s to like post World War Two. Yeah, World War Two kind of killed it, I think, in a big way mm-hmm. or like wounded it. It still obviously exists, but yeah, she's um, in the key part of that phase of these ideas being accepted. And like, I, I have proof. There's books and studies about it. So, yeah, yeah, we should we Ooh. should pick some of the the women from the eugenics movement to look at because I'm sure it would be sort of deeply fascinating. We should uh, victims or proponents? Probably both. There. Um, yeah. Have you read White Trash? Um, no. It's this great book about like white poverty and social class in America, but there's Mm -hmm. a huge chunk of it is about the eugenics movement and the way that a lot of states applied it to like poor rural white people in sort of like 
weird parallels to the way that like the state often treated ethnic minorities in that period it's like mm-hmm. for some reason yeah. being poor and white took away a lot of your whiteness and thus you were considered sort of target yeah. for eugenics well, you, yeah well you were seen as like um you you brought down the curve you know what i mean you uh you sort of ruined it for the rest of like you ruined all our arguments to p- oppress other people by being lower class exactly. so if we call that major- if we call that group then all of a sudden we have legs to stand on with the other minorities that we're trying to put down. It's yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's a bananas time. We should do that. I, I'm gonna look into that a little bit more. Maybe great. for next time. Yeah, that sounds great. I All mean, right. deeply depressing, but fascinating. I, it's I, it's depressing, but isn't it also uplifting to be like, yay, we now can talk about that in the past tense in a way. I yes. mean, yes, that not is. in a way that it's eradicated completely, like smallpox, but at the same time it's it's i find it less prominent in my day-to-day yeah i don't run into eugenics proponents on the daily god well not open ones that are like proud of it and get a tattoo of it but i would hope not i don't know okay (laughs) i'm gonna go process this now yeah me too i think i I could use a drink yeah okay great thanks michael thanks katie We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.